Hello, Lauren Hill here, career coach for creatives. Today, we're going to talk about the top nine reasons people don't invest in coaching and why you should. As a coach for creatives, I hear a lot of roadblocks when it comes to what my clients are struggling with. Most thought it daunting to even take that first step in entertaining the idea, but those who did take the first step received something greater than they ever expected. Momentum. Starting anything is probably one of the most challenging things humans face when trying to, quote, figure things out. That's because looking at the big picture can feel so overwhelming. But one thing I know for certain is that one tiny step forward adds to your bank, your momentum bank, that is. That first tiny step can make you feel so much more accomplished than you ever thought possible. I know because my clients tell me about this all of the time. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. When your momentum bank is running on empty, you can think of all the reasons why you shouldn't invest in coaching. Things like, number one, coaching seems too expensive. Let's do a little breakdown of your likely expenses. Average monthly food and drink, $600 to $1,000. New wardrobe for the summer, $700 to $1,500. New iPhone, $900 to $1,600. Monthly rent, $1,200 to $5,000. Upcoming vacation, $3,000 to $10,000. Three months of career and mindset coaching that will change your life forever? Priceless. It's funny how we think twice about some expenses and others seem very expensive. Coaching is an investment that gives back for years to come, plus helps you make more money and feel more at peace. Number two, is this coach credible or trustworthy? I don't know who to trust. Sometimes this thought can be a huge distraction, keeping you from just making a decision, choosing someone, and getting started. By the way, there is no one almighty perfect coach that is going to fix all your problems. Also, this is what the consultation call and strategy session are for. How will you ever know if someone is trustworthy or can help if you don't even talk to them? I recommend doing your research, asking questions, and using your intuition. Only you know who you vibe with and who you feel safe and supported by. Number three, I don't believe in myself enough to commit. No one 100% believes in themselves all of the time. That's why they hire a coach. Through the process of coaching, you will learn how to grow your belief in yourself and to continue to show up even at your lowest moments. It's okay to not fully believe in yourself and do things anyway. You just have to be willing to feel discomfort sometimes. And what's worse, the discomfort of feeling miserable and stuck, or the discomfort of trying something new and going after your dream with the help and support of a trained professional. Number four, 
it's going to be too much work or I'm too busy. You're too busy to listen to that inner knowing that keeps sending you messages that you're ready for more. You think celebrating, strategizing, and working on your mindset for an hour once a week is going to kill your social life or dig into your show binging time? Number five, maybe this is just a hobby. That's just a thought. A limiting one. Does it even serve you to think that? If you want something bad enough, you'll figure out a way to make it happen and align with thoughts you'll need to think to make it happen or hire a coach to help you learn how. Number six, I'm scared to be seen or insecure. This was me. I used to be terrified to be seen. I would freeze and my mind would go blank in one-on-one and group situations. I felt unsure of what to share and I worried about what people would think about it. But with practice, progress is made. I've also learned some mindset shifts to inspire me into action and step through fear. I coach these techniques to all my clients because the truth is, we all struggle with this one in some way or another. Number seven, I need permission. The only reason you think you need permission from someone else is because you don't want to take 100% responsibility for your results if you, quote, fail. You don't need permission to believe in yourself, and you don't need permission to get results. All you need is the decision to commit to believing in yourself and getting results. You're the only one who can make that decision. Number eight. What is coaching anyway? Coaching is a neutral place where you can show up regularly to develop more belief that the things you desire in life are possible and strategize a plan to make them happen. Number nine, where do I even start? Start by signing up for a free 15-minute career clarity session with yours truly. That way we can get to know each other a little bit better, discuss what issues you are currently facing in your work life, and I can see how I I might be able to help. That momentum bank we talked about earlier, I have a hunch it's in need for some filling up. When you work with me, I worry about the big picture so that you can focus on the small steps that will move you forward faster than you ever thought possible. So go ahead and schedule a 15-minute career clarity session. This is where you get clear about what you really desire and what's holding you back from achieving it. Then we can figure out if one-on-one coaching is right for you. Send me an email at lauren at curatedsplash.com. That's L-A-U-R-Y-N at C-U-R-A-T-E-D-S-P-L-A-S-H dot com. I look forward to hearing from you soon. So part of our job going forward into the world as artists is to remind people how ubiquitous we are and how necessary we are to absolutely everything, even this microphone I'm talking into. An artist helped design this. So we're really important. This is Art Is, a podcast for artists, where we brainstorm the future of the art world and the creative industries.
I think it just came from need. You know, it's like I have all these pots I'm making and I don't have enough friends to give them to. Now what do I do? And I think, especially as emerging artists, creating your own opportunities is a really important thing. And you look at what it is you're making, because there's all kinds of art. There's art that does belong in street festivals. There's art that does belong in galleries. There's art that belongs in coffee shops, in offices, in architectural firms. And you begin to learn what that look is, and then you begin to figure out where your work fits. And then you go looking either for existing opportunities. One of my friends calls it the Google machine. You go to the Google machine. Um, I've gotten a lot of shows just by Googling university art galleries with calls for art. You can find a lot of things by just plugging in. You can find things by reading other people's resumes. You can follow somebody else's trajectory. If you like their artwork and you think your work is compatible, look what they did. So there are ways to do it. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm basically a shy person walking up to somebody saying, hi, I'm an artist. You want to show me? Oh, goodness. For one thing, you should never do that. But at some point, you have to say that after you've had a conversation for a few weeks. And that's very hard for me. I'm delighted to have the online presence, which gives me an opening. But some of the more exciting stuff I've seen, like even back in Michigan, which had a very small art culture, but lots of really good artists, some, some of the young men that I knew, and they, were, they ranged in age, but there was this little group, I called them the Young Turks, even though they weren't all young, they started doing garage shows that were really successful. They not only had lots of eyes on the work, they also had a fair number of sales in a community that it's an automotive community. You know, it's Michigan. Everything was about making cars. And they didn't imagine that artists helped make cars. So why would they go look at art? Art's stupid. And so they got people to look. They made it fun. They invited people in at a level that they understood because they all knew what garages were. They kept their cars in the garage. Why would there be art in a garage? Let's go see that. So it develops partly from need. As your need shifts, you got to learn more. And so especially during the pandemic, I started studying more deeply the blue chip art world and how it works and how it is set up. And so I've started at this late date reading about art world economics and studying with Christie's Auction House, taking a couple of their courses to learn more about how these things operate. And trust me, I never studied economics in college, so it's a bit of a stretch. But what I learned was that while art, because it gets sold, is a commodity of a sort, certainly it's a luxury commodity. You and I think it's absolutely necessary, but let's face it, you got to eat first. But it doesn't function like a commodity of, say, toilet paper. We know what that is. It's functional. Everybody uses it, and the different brands get differentiated in marketing. Well, it's different with art because we have a much smaller pool of buyers and a much lower supply. And so it's 
got to be sold in a different way, like sold through the experience often. That's kind of where I am. Right now I'm studying with Christie's on marketing, and I think I've got the third episode coming up this week. And, you know, I, I learn things. You learn things everywhere. And I too have studied with mentors. I've used a couple of different consultants to help me get over some humps. There was one I used, Tressa Britton, and she helped me get over some of the ways in which I was getting in my own way because of my introversion, still introverted, but I now know how to get over some of the things. And then I studied on and off for years with Brainerd Carey through Praxis School for Aesthetics, I think he calls it. And he's a mensch. And it's kind of a group effort. It's mostly through Facebook and online. And I got a lot out of that. And I've done a lot of reading, too, of course. And then I go on and I mentor other people. I love to teach, but kind of on my own terms. I want to teach occasionally, and I want to teach deeply. And I'm actively mentoring one artist right now. And what we do is... It's very individualized. It's, you know, what are your goals? Where do you need help? How do my skill sets match your needs? And so for the artist, Nina, that I'm working with now, and she's actually one of the artists I represent, she wants to have just a couple of good local shows a year. She does not aspire to a large career, but she wants to learn how to create bodies of work and how to move them out of her studio. And she also wants to figure out the work-life balance because like most artists, like 90% of artists, she's got a full-time job and she's got a family. You know, she's taking care of her parents and her son. So how does she do this? And then the next person that I'm going to start mentoring, I think next month, it's for her, it's mainly, she's a recent um, MFA grad in photography. It's mainly work-life balance. She works in a gallery, and Nina actually works for another artist. She's a studio manager, and she's trying to figure out how to get the work-life balance organized so that she can be productive. And so I'm the sounding board and the accountability, as well as some experience that I've had. Yeah, you asked me about critique, and I loved my critiques in college, even though yeah, they give you an upset stomach and make you nervous, but they were mostly kind. And most of my critiques, actually, because I'm a lone wolf, I did one-on-one with my professors. And I had my favorites. I think we all had favorite professors. It was much harder to find after college. And in the last few years, I just started having a couple of critique groups. I know a lot of artists here, but my position in the community is a little bit of an odd one since I am a gallerist and I'm from outside. And I also am highly productive, take what I do extremely seriously, although lightheartedly. I mean, yeah, once it's done, it's done. I don't care what happens to the work once it's done. If it gets broken, so what? You know, the world will not come to an end. But I also show really, really a lot. And I have found that most of the artists that I meet don't have that same level of seriousness. And so a lot of the critique groups have wound up just being, oh, I love your work. Well, that's great. I mean, and, and that's valuable, but 
you want a bit more than that. You want somebody who can kindly say, well, that piece isn't working for me. Did you ever try turning it sideways? And I had the experience of being in a critique group where I was actually kind of excoriated by one member for making too much stuff. And and they were somebody who came every month saying, well, I haven't made anything. Well, I haven't made anything. Well, I haven't made anything. So it wound up not being a good fit. And the other comment I got was, oh, I can't critique sculpture. I'm a painter. Well, okay, then this is not the right group. So now I've got a much smaller group with a sculptor and an illustrator who works from a sculptural foundation. She illustrates books, children's books, and she sets up sculptural environments and then photographs them. And they're really quite remarkable. And this one is working better in terms of the work itself. And that's also very supportive because I know Izota, you just finished a commission and I did last year and it's wonderful to get commissions, but they also can drive you absolutely freakishly crazy because of the micromanagement that can happen or the misunderstandings. And my little tiny critique group of the three of us was so important to helping me get through some of the idiocy of that. (laughs) Oh, what goes into trusting yourself? Oh, and setting prices. Let me do the easy one first in a way. Setting prices. Oh, it's such a kabuki dance. And again, it depends on where your market is, which is such a foreign concept. But when you are pricing your work, you want to price it first off (laughs) at a price that isn't going to hurt your heart to sell it at that price. So if you're going to mourn uh, having sold it for the price you've put on it, then you haven't put enough money, you know, a high enough price on it. And the way I used to do it when I was working in dinnerware is I would add together an estimate because you buy clay by the ton. So how do you estimate it? But you an estimate of the materials and time cost. And I would multiply that by 10 to create my wholesale price. And I advise you, no matter what your market is, whether you're selling off the wall in a coffee shop, on the streets, in a gallery, to art consultants, have a wholesale price. Because wherever you sell, subsequent to wherever you are right this moment, you're going to have to pay somebody a commission. So I always would try to add 50% at least. I would try to double that price, that wholesale price. And then the key part, I would look around at other works similar to mine or in the bailiwick and say, okay, is this too high or too low? Because you don't want to be the top price and you don't want to be the low price. And you emphatically do not want to undersell dramatically your compatriots because it looks like you're trying to compete unfairly when you do that. And the other huge no-no is if you wind up selling in galleries, if your work needs that, you absolutely never, ever, ever undersell your gallery. And you may even have a contract that says you may not sell out of your studio. There are a lot of customers out there who think and will even say to the gallerist, oh, I'll just go you know, to the artist's studio after this show and I'll get it cheaper. Well, that's a real fast way to lose representation and to get 
a black mark next to your name in that closed art world if you've managed to make it into it. It's grossly unfair to the gallerist because they have spent money on you. Any gallerist worth their salt is spending hundreds of dollars a month on you, above and beyond whatever it is they have to pay for rent and lights and help. Because it costs money to market, even social media ultimately costs money because it costs time. And there are services that cost money that make using your time more efficient. So just add that 50% on to whatever your base price is and look around and see if it works within the market that you're in. And I really encourage you to do that. And that's part also of taking yourself seriously. We all make all kinds of trash and we make treasures. Not everything we make is a masterpiece. And so it's important that we not get frozen in that state of, oh my God, what if I ruined it? It's just stuff. And no bridges are going to fall into the river with cars on them like they did here in Minneapolis a few years back. Nobody's going to die if we make a crummy piece of art. So the hard part is letting go of the perfection And just understanding that as an artist, you have a role in your culture, whatever your culture is. Because as human beings, we have been marking and making things probably since before we had language. When we first picked up a stick to stir the coals that we saw left over in the fire, we're not quite sure how we lit, That was a tool that we fashioned. And when it was a particularly good tool, somebody had the bright idea of taking a stone and making some marks on it. Now, we don't know why they made the marks on it. Maybe it amused them. Maybe it identified that stirring stick as their stick. Maybe it added magic to the stick. It almost doesn't matter. It's a human trait and it's a human thing to do. And the artists and the shamans were the power of the community as communities started forming. They painted on the walls, evidently, to bring the bison to the hunters. You know, they were part of the magic that helped keep things going. So we were the sages. We were the important cultural carriers of story. And we still are in many ways, but it's been damped down by the pressures of capitalism, most especially. But understand that, you know, in a way, you're the, you're the modern day shaman. And you're also the person who designed the water bottle and the water bottle label that, you might, that people are drinking out of. You designed the disposable cup. You designed the shape of the cars that people drive. You designed how that cloth was woven, how it what colors were chosen, how the dyer dyed things. You designed the shoes. I mean, artists are in every single industry. Raising my child in an automotive town, going to school events, you know, school ice cream socials, you know, parents would say, oh, I would never let my child go to art school because they will starve. And I would look at them and I go, huh, do you like movies? Oh yeah, go to them a couple times a week. There are a lot of artists who work in the movies. They do the storyboards, they do the costumes, they do the sets, you know, they do the models. Oh, well, I still, uh, that's just too hard. And then I'd look at her and said, oh, look at that funny wooden spoon you're eating your ice cream with. Yeah, 
An artist designed that. Oh, clothing you have on. An artist designed that. So part of our job going forward into the world as artists is to remind people how ubiquitous we are and how necessary we are to absolutely everything, even this microphone I'm talking into. An artist helped design this. And so we're really important. I'm asked all the time how I get so much done. And, you know, I am privileged that I do get to do this full time. But one of the key ideas that I always keep front of mind is there are two dictums that I really work with. The first one is just show up, just show up in the studio. And even if all you do is make a shopping list, do it in your studio. And the other one is, if you have five minutes, use it. Everybody has complicated lives, you know, myself included. I'm recovering from a serious injury that has reduced my studio time more than 50%. And I am recovering, and I will recover. I'm about halfway there. But I used that dictum. It was like, well, I have to go to yet another medical appointment, but I can paint this armature. I've got five minutes. So I did it. And the other one is own your studio space. Now, we can't all rent big, glorious spaces as much as we would like to. It might just be the corner of your kitchen. It might be your dining room table. But negotiate with whoever you live with, wherever you live, that your studio remains your studio at all times, except possibly Christmas Day. But you have to have a place where you can leave your work out so that you know you can work at any moment. And the final thing is, you're not failing if you have an outside job. Even some of the more well-known artists in the world, including people like Felidia Barlow, I was just, I like her work very much and I follow her. And I was watching some information about her um, just this past week. And she's a Venice Biennale artist. And she shows all over the world, is represented by maybe four or five galleries. And she still teaches it's okay. We all do that. And we're all tired. But if you have five minutes, you use five minutes. And just know it's good what you're doing. The world needs you. I think that's all I have to share. You can find me at susanhenselprojects.com. And that's kind of the gateway to everything. All of my work is on there. And I really encourage you to read my blog because I do talk about art business and art motivation a lot on there. And from there, you can certainly find me on Instagram, Susan underscore Hensel underscore multimedia underscore artist on Instagram. And if you just search for my name, you will find I think approximately three of us, and two of us are artists. One is in St. Louis, Missouri area, and the other one is a gaming commissioner in the gambling industry. So you'll find us. Thank you for listening to Art Is, a podcast for artists. Please leave Art Is, a podcast for artists, a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find us. Also, I would love it if you took a moment to reflect on who in your life might also benefit from listening to this podcast. When you do, please share Art Is, a podcast for artists with them so we can continue to grow the show organically and brainstorm the future of the art world together. You can also support the work I do by subscribing wherever you listen and by donating to the podcast. 
The link to do so is in the episode description. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks so much, and see you next Wednesday. Wednesday.